You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode number 464, and I'm your co-host, Gemma Isroff. Rose Wigley is a senior staff developer on Shopify's payments and risk team. She has been a developer for over 25 years and has worked on a wide range of products from firmware to web development. She is the mom of two teenagers who keep her on her toes and three cats who like to crash meetings. I think we have one of them here with us today. In her spare time, she likes to spend time in the woods, read, cook, and work on crochet projects. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Rose. Thank you. Rose, what is your developer origin story? So this is kind of an interesting one because when I was in high school thinking about going to college... I had no computer at home and barely used them at school. I was writing papers in a word processor with a single line where you could go back and edit that line before it printed it out, which I thought was awesome. I thought I was going to be a mechanical engineer and I was going to an engineering school, but the engineering school wisely made you consider many different types of engineering and everybody had to take a well, actually two different intro to engineering classes in the first year before you declared which way to go. And when I was reading through the description of these classes in a classic 17-year-old teenager move, I get to intro to electrical and computer engineering and it says, in this class, you will get to build a small robot. And my brain went, robot? Oh, that's really cool. (laughs) And so I signed up for that class in the very first semester just because robots sounded cool. And that's what set me down the path starting in engineering. And then as I went through college, my engineering path went as close to coding as you got in the engineering. So like assembly language. And when I left school, I went out and did firmware for printers fresh out of college. So like, that's how I became a developer from somebody who had basically no experience with a computer, even as a user to actually writing stuff for computers. That's a really great story. Do robots still sound cool to you today? Yes, robots still sound cool to me today, but the closest I've gotten to doing anything robot-like since college is there's a local place that sells these little kits where you take a pager apart and combine the vibrating part of a pager to a toothbrush bristle part cut off from the toothbrush so that you can make with your kids a little robot that when you turn it on, it like randomly moves around on a table. Oh, nice. I thought it was going to be a like a, you make an electric toothbrush, but I see you making a little critter to move with the bristle. Yeah. Nice. Rose, you keynoted RubyConf Mini in the fall. Can you tell us about that experience? Yes. So that was the first time I ever keynoted anything. In fact, when Emily asked me the keynote, my response was like, wow, thank you so much. Do you know I've never done a keynote before? (laughs) (laughs) And it was really cool because her response back was, yes, like we want to pull in more people who have never done keynotes before. So it was a combination of Super exciting and also really terrifying, especially when I realized that I was doing the closing keynote. I'm not sure why, but like I felt like after the days of awesome content 
that everybody would be producing and putting out there that if I was going to be the last person they listened to, I better make sure that it was worth listening to. I can say it was most certainly worth listening to and such a great way to close off the conference. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And also the coolest thing about the ending keynote is I could take little bits and pieces as I went to the conference and then pull up my stuff and fold references to those back into the keynote, which was really fun because then like it kind of hopefully tied everything together. How did it feel actually giving it? So it's interesting because whenever I present, like first I should say part of me is terrified. Getting up Mm -hmm. and speaking in front of people, I don't care how much I do it. I will probably have nerves my entire life. I joke that it's about making the butterflies in my stomach fly in formation so that they don't get in my way. But I also go into this, what I call speaker mode, where I compartmentalize the nerves away and like switch into another part of my brain where I just exist as the speaker. And it's weird because when it's done and I like step out of speaker mode, sometimes I can't even remember what I did or what what happened. I can totally relate to that. I think something I'm trying to work on is becoming more myself as a speaker. So stepping into speaker mode, but still maintaining my persona, I think is the next step. So one of the things I thought was so brilliant about your keynote was the message and the way it weaved through the entire talk. Can you talk a little about what that was and how you ended up picking what to talk about? Originally, I was thinking programming conference, really technical keynote, but It just wasn't working. I had a topic, but it just, I don't know, it felt wrong. RubyConf Mini was a very special conference because it existed not just as a we want a programming conference, but as a we need to create a programming conference that supports members of our community who would otherwise be left out due to things beyond their control. So... I felt like there was some weight with that that we had to acknowledge. And all of you who planned it did such an amazing job of putting sessions in and messages in throughout. So that was acknowledged throughout, which made me even like gladder that I had decided that needed to be part of my keynote. Uh, The other thing is I live in Idaho right now. So All these issues have direct impact on me and my family and people we know. So these things, while I am, as I say in my keynote, a straight, cis, white woman, I know people who are directly impacted by the type of policies that led to us having to have a RubyConf mini. So it felt really important to me to talk to that, as well as to like talk to my experience as a woman who's been programming and engineering for 25 years, where it feels like in some ways things have changed drastically and in other ways they have not changed at all. I know something you've talked about a lot and written about is titles. Why are titles important? So titles are one of those tricky things where they are both extremely important and then sometimes not important. In my keynote, I tried to talk about both why they are and they aren't. One of the really important things about titles is as you progress through your career, 
you gain a huge amount of experience and knowledge and abilities to do things. But when you walk into a room with people that you have not interacted with before, they have no idea what all you bring with you into that room is. And a title, in a way, is like a shortcut. It is letting people know that you have a certain level of experience, breadth, and range. So that when you walk in and you say something, especially if you say something that they might disagree with, it allows a person to get the context that you are carrying behind you without you having to come in and spend 10 minutes giving your entire bio just to make sure that they're willing to listen to you. As a woman in software development, I find titles are extremely important because I have been in situations where people will disregard what I say because I am a woman in software development or will assume that I am not there as a programmer. And so I tend to balance when I use and don't use my title kind of based on those situations, because on one hand, if I need it to clear space for myself, then I will make sure to drop the title out there to make the space so I can be heard. On the flip side, just like that title can clear space for me, it can also block space for other people. So I'm very careful when I bring it up, for example, in a collaborative discussion where a group of engineers at different levels are trying to work out a problem. I do not want to come in, drop my title, push them out of the conversation and sweep in. I want to come in as a peer where we all bring perspectives and everybody should be judged on the quality of the idea and if it will work. So that's kind of where I say a title is a two-sided thing where it's both really important, but you also have to be very careful that it doesn't accidentally cause people not to contribute or to value what you say at a level that isn't directly related to the evidence behind it. That's really interesting thinking about flips of both sides of the title, right? Where it can take space as well as make space. Right. The traditional tool stack wasn't meant for this kind of hybrid work we're all experiencing now. Miro, on the other hand, was always designed for it. Designed to fit into your engineering workflow, not the other way around. Miro is an infinite digital whiteboard-like space where you can up your team velocity. Want to create user story maps? Prioritize your backlog? Organize tasks into sprints while connecting with your team? Miro's got tons of templates for that, no problem. Being able to shoot a link to a Miro board and bring other teams into the conversation, especially for engineering teams like yours that want to bring in marketing or product, it'll completely change how you think. Miro also has integrations with tools you probably already use like Jira, Azure, and Rally. Import tasks from them as native cards to visualize the big picture. Draw dependency lines, manage workloads, and make adjustments on the fly to stay aligned and on track. Miro's estimation app also gives you a clear understanding of work scope and lets you identify gaps in analysis or understanding and set clear expectations for delivery. Head on over to Miro.com slash Ruby, that is M-I-R-O.com slash Ruby, to check out the Ruby on Rails podcast community board in action. Get to know us, the co-hosts, play some games, and leave feedback on this podcast episode with sticky notes, comments, reactions, and more. That's Miro.com slash Ruby. Thank you to Miro for sponsoring the show. 
I wonder if that means you could also use other people's titles to try encourage them to take up more space in a room or something like that. 100% in both directions. I have gone into new situations and had other people who are respected there or who have a well-known title introduce me to people just because there's that carryover of because they say this person knows what they're doing, then other people will listen to them. So those of us who have the ability to clear space need to use that ability to push other people into that space, whether it be using their title to help make space for them or just using the fact that people are already listening to you. As a simple example, and I'm not sure if I mentioned this in my talk or not, but when you are in a group having a discussion, occasionally you might notice that somebody starts to say something but gets cut off by somebody else. Or somebody, like, they just have an expression on their face that clearly says they disagree, but they are afraid to say it. Then those of us who have the ability to push in need to use that ability to say, hey, so-and-so, what did you think about this? Or I noticed you started to say something. Can we pause and listen? Or if you're afraid they'll be too hesitant to speak in public, send them a Slack message. Ping them to chat afterwards and find out their idea and then say to them, this is a really good idea. Are you willing to share it? Can I share it and say that you said it? What is your comfort level? You mentioned that in your keynote, you were able to reference other people's talks. I was actually watching a talk that Alex Tarasa, also at Shopify, gave at RubyConf. I don't know if you've seen this talk about what it means to be a staff engineer. And he quoted you, which was quite a wonderful thing to see. Can you tell us what does it mean to be a staff engineer? Or I know, speaking of titles, you're a senior staff engineer at Shopify. What does that title mean generally and then specifically at Shopify? So first, thank you for letting me know I have not seen his talk. So now I have to go out and find that talk. So I feel like in the industry, through senior engineer, we generally have a good idea of as you build your developer skills, you eventually progress to be a senior engineer. The way I look at the track beyond that is it is a shift in type of job. So the engineering skills you have built up through senior engineer are absolutely required and will get stronger and better as you head into the staff track. But it is no longer sufficient to be somebody who can sit down and write really amazing code and maybe work with a couple engineers to produce some new feature. You start to take on leadership's abilities. And in some ways, I kind of think of it as as a manager and a staff engineer are two sides of the same coin, where one side is focused more on the people and one side is focused more on the technology. But both sides have a lot of crossover and both sides are responsible for the health of the team and the product. So some examples, I think staff engineers, like as senior engineers, we judge ourselves based on what we do like ourselves. As staff engineers, we have to start more judging ourselves based on what we are enabling our teams and even teams around our teams to do. 
For example, a staff engineer may actually write a lot less code than a senior engineer, but they might be doing more PR reviews. They might be doing more design reviews. They might be doing more things that enable everybody on their team to be able to up their game. So like in industry, we always have the debate about whether or not it's possible for somebody to be a 10X engineer. And I don't think any single person on their own in a silo can be a 10X engineer. I think our staff engineers have the ability to magnify the impact of all the other engineers around them. And that's how you start to 10X and even greater the impact. It's as a team, not as an individual. I so strongly agree with that point. One point I'm curious though on is then how do you measure your impact or think about measuring your impact as a staff engineer? It is really hard and it is a transition that you have to go through that I think is actually stressful for a lot of people because when you are hands-on writing stuff, it is easy to point at something and be like, I wrote that, I did that. On the other hand, say you have a really good senior engineer who comes up with a design, gives you their design document, and you spend an hour talking to them about their design. And in that hour, you ask them a bunch of questions. You're like, how are you going to handle if this fails? Have you considered about this aspect? And you may never give them any answers. You may never say, you missed failure handling. You need to do it this way. You're going to say, how will you handle failure? And they'll go, oh, good point. I haven't thought about that. Actually, we could handle failure this way and that way. And at the end of the conversation, in a way, you didn't add anything to the design directly. The senior engineer did all the actual, okay, we'll change the design this way and that way. But if you had never had that conversation, the design would not be nearly as good because you knew to ask the questions. You knew where the holes were. You knew to get them thinking about things. Huge impact that's going to trickle out for months on whatever the project is. But then you can kind of second guess yourself and be like, well, what did I really do there? They thought of it all. Right, right. And so you have to learn to count those as wins. You have to look at the members of your team that you supported and think to yourself, here's where they were and here's where they are and here's how I helped them. And you have to look at projects where maybe you also were involved in the kickoff and the first part and then people ran with it and remind yourself, I did X, Y, Z, so these amazing people would be set up to be successful. And sometimes you actually have to congratulate yourself for what you didn't do because by not doing it, somebody else got to go do it and be successful. Can you talk to a very specific thing you said, which was asking, for example, have you thought about failures versus saying you need to deal with failures in this way? Can you talk to the difference there? I suspect it's a little bit of the Socratic method where you sometimes ask people questions to point them in the direction of where you already know there is a problem. Because you want your teams to expand out their ways of thinking. So 
if you go to them and say, you have not implemented failure handling here, here's how to do it, then they know and learn in the future, I will go to my staff engineer, they will find the problems and they will tell me how to fix them. If on the other hand, you say, have you thought about failure handling? That gets their brains going next time. Like, no, I haven't. Next time I need to think more about failure handling. So now on this particular design that they're working on, they will go, no, I haven't, and they will start thinking about it. But hopefully the next time they go to architect or design something, already in the back of their mind is failure handling. So they will have thought about failure handling. And then maybe that time you ask another question, like, have you thought about how you're going to monitor this so that you can tell the difference between this new feature that will only make up 5% and the other 95% that already exists? And so over time, by asking, have you thought about this? You're teaching them, it is your job to think about this. I'm just here to remind you. Yeah, the intentional teaching really stands out to me there. And also what you were saying earlier about magnifying their impact, right? Triggering someone else to really keep thinking about these questions that you had on your mind as opposed to doing it for them is enabling them and also helping with their PD. That makes so much sense. Yeah, 100%. And it's also the higher up you get in engineering crafting leadership, the less time you spend hands down in the code. And that means that not only is it important to train those people to think about those things, but the answers they come up with to those questions may be better than what you had suggested because they will know all those intricacies in their area and their exact project that you may not be as familiar with. So you know to ask the question, you know the solution is needed, but they may be the best people to have the solution. Do you currently use one service for uptime monitoring, another one for error tracking, another for status pages, and yet another to monitor your cron jobs and microservices? Paying for all those services separately may be costing you way more than you think. If you want to simplify your stack and lower your bills, it's time to check out HoneyBadger. HoneyBadger combines all of those services into one easy-to-use platform. It's everything you need to keep production healthy and your customers happy. Best of all, HoneyBadger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at honeybadger.io. That is honeybadger.io. Thank you to HoneyBadger for their continued support of the Ruby on Rails podcast. So how much code should a staff engineer actually be writing? That wildly depends (laughs) on the staff engineer. Yes, the traditional it depends answer. So one thing I will say is every staff engineer and even senior staff engineer should be writing some code, should be doing something where they are hands down in the product. For example, I just changed teams, so I'm not right now, but on my past team, I stayed on the on-call and like shifts that engineers take to answer questions from support. Mostly when somebody is on call on our team, that is all they are focused on. It is harder to do that when you're in a role where there are certain meetings and things you can't stop doing. So it takes more work. But the trade-off I found was really worth it because if you are out there 
solving a customer's problem or figuring out what happened or like doing all these things. You are getting that hands-on time on the system and you're also becoming familiar with the pain points of the system. And one of the dangers, the farther up you go the crafter track, is as you lose that hands-on experience, you start to get what I kind of think of as the pie in the sky view of things where you're more based on theory than you are on practice. And you could actually perpetuate bad practices because you haven't seen how they play out on the ground. So that's why I really want staff engineers and senior staff engineers to make that time for that on the ground work so that you always stay in touch with the product, with the team's day-to-day problems. So you understand the impact of a switch to tooling, for example, and how it speeds people up or slows them down. So that you really understand and know if there's a certain pain point for your customer that's caused by something in engineering. The problem is you may be busy with things such that it's hard to do time-critical things. So for example, if there's a project with strict deadlines, a staff engineer or senior staff engineer may not want to work on the code for the thing that has to be out the door in five days, no Mm -hmm. matter what. Mm -hmm. So you have to make time for things that are impactful, but not necessarily urgent. I like to look for the gnarly bugs that aren't so critical, they have to be fixed right away, but are still important and impactful and will take some time and experience to work through them because that leverages their skill set, but it keeps them out of the time critical timeline. That makes sense to remove yourself from that urgent path. Yes. You said you recently switched teams. Why did you make the switch? So it was a really hard decision because I adored my old team. My teammates were wonderful. You know, when you're just in a good spot with really smart, really kind people working hard on something, and that's wonderful. In turn, I have been on the team for two and a half years, and it took somebody else who I really respect giving me some like mentorship advice to kind of make me realize this because I was so happy in the team. But as you build up experience in a certain area and product area, and you start to know it better and better, your own learning and development can start to slow down and stall. Because on one hand, we all want to be the person who knows the answers and understands everything. On the other hand, If you know most of the answers, then what are you learning? So my drive was partly to push myself where I can learn and expand. The other part of it was going back to talking about taking up space. As somebody with experience on the product, I take up a certain amount of space and we have some really wonderful, brilliant developers who should be moving into some of the space I was in. And so by getting out of the way, sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to move out of the way to let others go in. There's a blog article out there that was written for startups called Letting Go of Your Legos or something along those lines. And it's for startups, but I think it's for any engineering team. 
part of growing yourself and increasing your impact is you have to let go of what you used to do. We'll find that article and link it in the show notes. I'm definitely curious to read it, but that does make sense to me, especially what you were saying about knowing the answers, right? If you're the one asking questions, it's maybe helpful to not know all the answers and to get into a space where you especially don't know all of the answers. How have you been onboarding onto your new team? So it's been really fun. For me as a senior staff engineer, I'm onboarding across multiple teams. And so I'm doing it in a combination of ways. One thing I'm doing is having meetings across engineering, both the engineering managers, the staff engineers on the team, but also meetings outside of engineering. So all the outside of engineering area teams that have to do with my product area. So I will talk to people in UX and I will talk to people in data and I will most definitely talk to people in product because one of the things I see for staff engineers is we help provide that translation level between our teams and the needs of those outside teams. So for example, if product comes and says, we want this giant new feature, a staff engineer has to have the knowledge to look at what they're asking for and think to themselves, okay, generally speaking, this is an easy part. This will be a hard part and be able to create that conversation and say back, okay, I think we need to focus on this part or only do this thing first because this will be the fastest thing engineering can do to help solve your problem. And go back to engineering and explain to the team, here's what product wants. Here's why I think we should do this. Am I wrong? And so it's important not only to create those connections, but it's also important to listen to those people and hear their needs because then in turn, If I'm reviewing a design document, I might say, you're right, this is going to speed up things 100x, but have you thought about how it may impact the metrics the data team is emitting to track some metric? Could you go talk to the data team and make sure they can still do what they need to do? And if I don't understand enough about the data team, then I won't know to do that. Right. So you need to understand the full scope of the problem space you're working in, not necessarily all the intricacies, but at least at a broad level, who's doing what in order to be able to direct people. Right. And I need to know where the friction points are. So I will ask, like, a manager needs to know the friction points and problems for a team, but a staff engineer needs to know more leaning towards the technical side of stuff. But teams are made up of people. And if there is a non-technical friction point and a couple of people get together to review a design document together, that is going to have impact on technical. So part of onboarding into the team is to understand the team dynamics and how I can work in those dynamics. And then the other half of that is very much a technical dive. So I already started asking people, where can I go find these types of issues that are intricate, but not time critical so that I can pull something off of it? Another engineering manager gave me some really good advice on onboarding, which is 
When we onboard people, we tend to give them a very simple issue to kind of help them go through the process. But if you really want to onboard fast, you want to look for the nastiest, scariest issue you can find. Right, right. Because when you're done with it, you're really going to know a bunch of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Rose, as we're wrapping up, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Rails communities? So I love the Ruby on Rails and Ruby communities. And I find it funny that Ever since I have been involved in Rails, I hear people talk about how Rails is dying. We won't be doing Rails soon. Like people shouldn't learn that. And yet it feels like right now we're in this like second resurgence of Rails. And I work at Shopify. I laugh at some of the conversations I've heard in the past on Rails doesn't scale as I sit here at Shopify, a gigantic Rails shop running e-commerce as scale. So I think Ruby and Ruby on Rails are here for the long haul. And one of the reasons I think that is because of the amazing community we have. We have so many brilliant but kind people. I see initiatives creating mentorship programs for new Ruby developers with people flocking to these initiatives to support them. I see the wonderful community that you helped make for um, women and non-binary Rubius. I see showing up at a conference, people who I would have been terrified to talk to. And when I accidentally end up in a conversation with them, they are the nicest, kindest, most welcoming people who just make you feel happy to be talking to them because you know that they are making you feel welcome. And I think that technical knowledge plus care just makes a community that will be able to sustain itself. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel very similarly about many people and particularly you in the Ruby community. Thank you so much. (laughs) Rose, how can listeners follow you? So I am kind of sort of on Twitter. I check Twitter sometimes, but it seems a little bit sluggish. I'm on Mastodon. I have a blog, sort of, in that I think I post like once every six months to once a year. If people want to reach out and ping me on Twitter or Mastodon, then feel free. I will see it, even though I may not check it as frequently. And anybody in the WNB.RB community, I'm on that Slack server. Perfect. Yes. Thanks so much again. It's been a real pleasure to interview you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. This has been really fun. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.